0: Well, it's good to be back in the house of the Lord after last week, is it not? I have to admit, last week brought back a little bit of, uh, what should I say, nightmares from having just preached to an empty room. And and so, you know, with the impending storm that we experienced, it was, uh, we had to make a decision and we ended up recording the service on Saturday and a lot of people were thinking that. We brought the whole worship team and so on here on Sunday morning while the rest of you stayed home, and that was not the case. We actually did it the day before. So I learned something in this. When we were, during the four months of not meeting together as a church during COVID, uh, you know, there was a reason why we just brought the worship team here on site and and myself. Uh, But in those circumstances, when it's because of a storm, I, in hindsight, realized we could have invited you. Um, and you could have been here while we were recording it for the Sunday morning. And so going forward, if we end up doing a recording of the service on a Saturday prior to a storm on Sunday, you'll be invited. Is that good? Yeah. All right. So it's, it's just a, it was just something that occurred to me. It's like, we can do that. And uh, it'll be short notice, uh, but we would invite you to come. And so uh, I look forward to hopefully never having to do that. But if we do, we'll do it on a Saturday, which... You know, again, not a bad thing because in Scripture, Saturday was the day of Sabbath. So uh, we'll just do it on the Sabbath day. Well, at this time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in our series uh, out of the book of Ephesians. And while you are turning there, I just want to speak to something that is going to be happening this coming Wednesday and the following Wednesday, so the 19th and 26th. Uh, you know, I heard uh, over the previous uh, few months that uh, a radio host said that the church has not done a good job equipping uh, its people for how to engage issues that are going on in society that are concerning. And, uh, and, you know, I was thinking through that, and there's things that certainly we've done, but I was like, you know what, message received, let's consider what we can do to equip our people if they're willing to, to hear and listen to equip from Scripture, how to engage issues in society. So I'm going to put on the screen right now scriptures we are going to be using this coming Wednesday night. So if you have a phone and you want to take a picture of the screen, you can do that now, and you can pre-read what we're going to be addressing uh, this coming week. So I'll be out of the text, First Peter chapter 2, verses nine to 17. We'll be in Philippians 3, verses 10 to 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 11, chapter, I mean, chapter 11, verse 1, and then Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 20. And those are the texts of teaching to give us guidelines for how we can engage issues in our culture. And then we're going to go to Acts chapter 23 to to chapters 26. Now we won't be reading all of this, but we'll highlight it as that's the example of where Paul utilized the principles I believe you'll find in the previous text. And so we'll use that as our example text of how to apply some of these things in society that might be concerning. The two questions we will ask this week are, what is a Christian's responsibility in society as an American citizen? Okay, so let me ask that again. What is a Christian's responsibility in society as an American citizen? So we are Christian, and we have a citizenship in heaven, but there is a responsibility, perhaps, that we can say that as Americans we get. There is a uniqueness to America that we don't see in Scripture. And, and, you know, we're not democracies in the time the scripture was written. So we're in a unique time where the government's of the people and for the people. And so, how do we then apply the most important aspect of our lives, the gospel, into uh, the responsibilities as a citizen of this particular country? The second question would be how do I engage issues in my community that are not aligned with my Christian beliefs, yet affect me and my family? So how do I engage these issues when there are things that do trouble me based on my understanding from what Scripture teaches that inform my Christian beliefs and will affect certainly me and my family? So those are the two questions, and then I've given you the text, and so then we will go into these things on Wednesday night. Uh, and then the following week, we'll get into more of the issues and regarding some of the racial tensions that we're all experiencing to some degree. And, uh, and so what does the Bible have to say about these things? And how do we lean in and let the gospel be the reconciling message that we see in the book of Ephesians? And so uh, we'll be looking at that in the following week. And I'll give you some more texts and some more, a couple of questions and pre- preceding that to, again, prepare your heart. So this is an open invitation to you, to anybody you might want to invite. And, uh, and we're going to have an opportunity where we unpack those scriptures. There'll be reflection on those scriptures. Then we'll allow Q&A. And, uh, and there will be several of us here up on stage with our Bibles in hand to respond and go to the scriptures to figure out some things from the text itself. And so part of the, the incentive in this is to learn under the authority of scripture, how to have civil discourse over issues that trouble our hearts. And, uh, and from that, we can learn how to then apply that out in society. And so I look forward to that time, and, uh, and I look forward to seeing what God does and uses uh, these nights going forward, because while much of the issues we're dealing with in society are not new, uh, they will intensify. We know that from Scripture that the issues in society will intensify as the world continues to turn its back on God. And so, as believers armed with a message that can transform a life, how do we then engage those issues in a way where we can see that realized? And so, be praying for the evening. Uh, I fully expect it to be a uh, very meaningful and uh, and also a refreshing experience of engaging uh, between people, uh, as a, maybe a, compared to what. We have not appreciated in society where we tend to operate immediately from a point of divisiveness. And so there's an opportunity with the gospel, and we'll take it and seize that on Wednesday night. So let's pray before we enter in, and I think that's a good way to transition into our text. Do you agree? All right, let's pray. Father God, I have to admit that if it was left to our own thinking, we would be a mess in trying to lead ourselves or even to find some level of unity to be able to lead ourselves in a society like we're in today. But thankfully, by your spirit and by your word, we can be drawn into unity. All of us, even with our different upbringings and our different backgrounds, uh, we can be brought into unity together. If you were able to bring the Jew and Gentile together, how can you not also bring all of us Gentiles together and for the Jews among us. And so we believe in the work of the gospel. And so we now approach the text in Ephesians 4 with that same hope. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going to be reading in verses 22 to 29. But let me give a little context just in case you haven't been here for the series. Uh, So in the first two chapters of Ephesians, it basically outlines how Christ uh, is the, the arm of God reconciling people back to himself, but also reconciling people with each other. There is divide among people, and that's not new under the sun which people groups perhaps, but it's not new under the sun that there is division among us and that people tend to think more highly from the lens and perspective that they carry at the cost and demeaning of another. But the gospel does a miracle. It takes that which is divided and it brings it together as one. And we become one church, one family. Under one Lord, and yes, with one mission. And that is the, the spirit of this epistle. And we've chosen to teach this epistle during this time, at a time when the church has been separated during uh, the pandemic, where much many people are home, and some of them are even home right now because of the, the spike in, in infections. But it, it's a very difficult season to be in unity and to be together. And so with Ephesians being that which teaches us that we literally are reconciled together in Christ. And then once reconciled, we are meant to then bless and build each other up in the likeness of what Christ does on our behalf. And so in the beginning of chapter 4, it takes goes from the theology side and the, and the Christology side into the application portion where it says in light of the fact that Christ is the reconciler. Christ is the one who provides atonement. Then he creates this new people. And then with that, according to chapter 4, verse 1, then we are then to live a life worthy of that calling. And so we're, about, we're looking at then how we live out that life that is found in Christ. Later on in verse 16 of chapter 4, it talks about then how we live that out among each other. Verse 16 saying, For through him, Christ, the whole body then is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and then uh, together we grow up and build each other up as each of us do our work. So the constructivity then of a unified people that have been brought together, that are all of various ethnicities and differences and backgrounds, brought together under one umbrella, and then to live out that reconciliation with each other by serving each other and building each other up. And so that continues forward into the text today that this church is meant to build each other up. It's, so yes, last week we talked about we're to get rid of our old self and take on the new, but that's not for the case of being just about you. You're not the end game. The end game is a bride being brought up In the likeness of Christ and giving glory to God together. That is the end game. And so as we look at this text, as it's talking about the transformative work of Christ, then that transformative work that's done in you is to a greater end. So let's look at verse 22 and continue into verse 29. It says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by deceitful desires to be made new then in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body in your anger do not sin Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must do work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may then have something to share with those who are in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, That it may benefit those who listen. Okay, so it's not about you, but we need to begin with you, okay? So Christ is doing a reconciling work between all of us, and then he is doing a transformative work in each of us so that 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 combination of us together can then have its fullest impact. But he's going to address some things today that in the text that is going to get on a step on each of our toes so it's addressing words that we speak it's addressing anger that might come from within it is addressing idleness or that is taking from one another versus giving to one another and then yes what we say has great power and whether it builds or it destroys if by the end of this message i fail to teach the scripture well enough that you feel your toes are not stepped on, I definitely am not doing my job. This text will hit on all of our toes, will step on all of our toes because it is dealing with that which is most easily a fault in all of us, our mouths. (laughs) Amen, right. And then the next thing is anger. Been there, done that, right? Have you felt anger in the last week? Again, it's involuntary. It happens, right? So we're going to talk about our words, our tongue, anger, and we're also going to talk about what's the purpose by which we do work and have that high work ethic. So I don't believe you can possibly walk out of here and not be convicted to some degree because if you're a walking human being and you desire to be more transformed like Christ you will find that you fall short and you're in need of the continued work of Christ in you. And so to that end, we're gonna break it down and work through this together and because for together, we need this work done in our lives, myself included. So back to verse 25 when it says, in light of the fact that we are to put on this new self to be like God in his righteousness and holiness, we then must therefore put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to one another. Okay, so in light of this new attitude that God wants to create in each of us, he has already said in the text prior in verse 20 to 22 that Christ is the truth. He is the truth. And so when the truth is in us, then what comes out of us should be truth. But part of what comes out of us are our words, and it's going to come from a source. So whatever is in you will be the source of the words that come out. And so in this text, it says that we, therefore, in light of the fact that we got a new attitude, a new self uh, that God is doing and transforming in us, we should then get rid of all falsehood and speak only that which is truth to each other. So the first point, that, that if you're taking notes, would be this, that truth wisely spoken will lead to thriving relationships. Truth wisely spoken will lead to thriving relationships. Now, I need to qualify these words a little bit as to why I list it like that. So truth wisely spoken leads to thriving relationships. So in light of this, it says we're not to speak any falsehood. So we are to speak nothing that would cause somebody to believe something in error. So our words should never be misleading. They should not be incomplete in order to create a different narrative. They should not be intentional at causing somebody to think truth is this when in reality it's this. Nothing like that or even a blatant lie should ever come from our mouths in regards to each other. That is not how Christ operates. Yet, it's very common for believers to not always shoot straight with one another and or maybe to cause people to think something is true when in reality, that's only partly true. And and that is not the highest standard we're called to. Uh, Instead, we're called to absolute truth. Now, I say in this, that yes, because Jesus is truth, the people that are speaking truth are, are then able to then help each other directly, but this must be wisely done. You see, when we speak truth to one another, because this is in the context, words spoken to each other are in the context that we are called as the body of Christ to build each other up. So, in that, We must make sure that when we speak truth to one another and we're spotlighting things in each other's lives that we're doing so in a constructive manner. So therefore, we must always test our thoughts before we speak them. There needs to be an application of seeking the Holy Spirit before we speak them into somebody else's life. Because truth spoken in the wrong manner can be destructive. So let me just give an example. It's, there has never been a more awkward time in a marriage than when in the morning, when the wife might ask the husband, how does my hair look today? Now, a husband may have the opportunity to say very quickly, it looks beautiful, love. It looks great. Your hair looks wonderful, my dear. Or as I say, babe. But what if you're looking at her hair and it's like, it's not our best day? There's the problem, right? So what do you say? Eh, it's okay, it'll do. It's not going to be satisfying. But if you pause and then you give some kind of glowing response, they know you're lying. So you're caught. Do I speak full truth? Do I speak part truth? How do I handle it? You know, some, it says in Proverbs that even a fool is thought wise when he remains silent. The problem is, is that your silence speaks a lot in the moment. So you feel caught in these moments. And so there is an aspect. And that's just kind of a light moment and that we all have. You know, when you compliment somebody's hair, your hair looks really good today. They're like, well, it looked bad yesterday. You know, we, we get those dynamics. But here's the point. Truth... Can be spoken in completeness and full and be destructive and not constructive. If you do it with the poor motive, if you do it in a wrong spirit, if you do it in timing that serves your own needs and not the other, then your words of truth will not build the other person up you're speaking into. Been there and lived that? Understand what I mean when, it, when you, you talk about, it's like, yeah, that's the truth, but man, you said it in a manner that cuts. Or you said it in a manner where you're speaking as one that's over me, not as one that's speaking brother to brother or sister to sister. Or the timing seems to reek of just, well, that was good for you to say in this moment, but it really doesn't help me at all for that to come now. Now, it's also true that words wisely spoken, truth wisely spoken, done with the right motive, done with the right spirit, done with the proper timing, can still get a response that's not pleasant. Been there and experienced that? When you try to speak into somebody else's life and you do it in all the right ways, you even pray up, you might have even fasted before talking to this person, and as gently as possible, you share only to have the response be filled with anger or complete rejection. It's for that reason, because people do respond poorly. Even when truth is spoken wisely, when they respond poorly, it causes us to be gun-shy in doing that again. And so many of us have had bad experiences of where we've done it well, only to have it put back in our face and it not be received well but it's also true. You've seen you might be gunshot because it's been done so poorly to you, and you've never had good examples on how to speak truth into somebody else's life in a way that is constructive and beneficial. So it is true that our words, while spoken in truth, is something that can be constructive. It can also be Destructive. So therefore, wisely spoken is the best path to go and letting the Holy Spirit guide you of when, how, and what spirit and timing by which you speak into somebody else's life. But I do not find it to be a mistake that right after this, he speaks about anger. Because think about it. The person who does not respond well to the truth being spoken into them, that. Maybe it was done in all the right manner, but if they reject it, what's usually the involuntary response you get? Anger. Or then what happens if somebody responds to you when you did it gently and by the spirit that's appropriate? Then when somebody responds in anger towards you because you did it, what's the nightly response back to them? Anger. So anger is, a, is often the first response to somebody's words when speaking the truth into somebody else. And so therefore, I can say with pretty co- strong confidence, words are a leading cause of anger. Anybody want to disagree with that? That words are often a leading cause of what happens that leads to anger. Now, anger, again, is an involuntary emotion that just comes. So somebody does something you don't like or a behavior, anger is the first response. It's involuntary. Doesn't mean that it's sin yet, but it does come, and it comes involuntarily and quickly. But we have to be aware that when anger enters in, and it's usually by words, anger continues forward by words. So James chapter 3 gives us a lot of caution about what we speak as it compares in verse 5 of James 3, that says our tongue is like that spark that literally is a single little tiny spark that can end up consuming an entire forest. You see, a poorly spoken word that even if it's true, if done out of anger, can create a forest fire that consumes the entirety of it. So therefore, our words are of truth must be wisely and spiritually spoken, lest it becomes a, a movement of anger that can affect both you and the receiver, or you as the receiver and the other person as giver. So, in this text about anger, there's a couple of questions that come to mind when you read the text because it says, In your anger, do not sin. So, the natural question is, When does anger become sin? That's a fair question. So let's try to answer it. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of scripture that would support these statements. Uh, but let me just kind of walk through them uh, one at a time. But sinful anger happens when it begins to consume your thoughts and therefore dictate your perspective. Anger is likely becoming sin when it is consuming your thoughts And it's therefore the perspective by which you see all things, especially in the particular issue that maybe has created the anger. So if that is your lens and anger cannot escape you by how you think about a situation or what you continue to think repetitively in your mind, then anger is likely entered into a place of sin. We have been told that, that whatever is part of your mind that consumes your thoughts that's not of God is of that of sin. So I believe that's where you can see that sinful anger can begin to happen. Also, additionally, if anger is what's making the decision for the desired outcome of a situation, then likely anger is becoming sinful. Let me say that again. Sinful anger is likely happening when it's through, by anger, you desire a particular outcome. For example, you're angry at someone, and you know, you feel like they've wronged you. And then you're in your anger, what do you wish for? Their failure. For their destruction. For their belittling. For their demeaning. And that's where you can begin to say, if that's what I begin, if if I have anger towards someone and I find that my thoughts are about their demise, then likely anger has entered into sin. How about anger becomes sinful when your words are spoken to wound them versus build them up? That's an easier one to test when, you know, it's like you can look back and say, yeah, when I spoke to that person in anger, it was definitely to wound. It wasn't to build. That likely means it was sin. Or if it's in the retaliation mode, you made me bleed, so now I make you bleed. Again, likely that anger has become sin in you. Now, why is this important to say after talking about speak truthfully to one another? Let no falsehood be spoken between each other. It's because I believe that we don't often like the truth spoken to us, especially if it's corrective about our nature. And so we bristle at that, and it's easy for that involuntary anger to show up. And then if we begin to hold on to that anger, it can become a destructive cancer to your character which is why it says the next statement that I want to ask the question about it says okay in your anger do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger so what does that mean well I believe some people see it as well that is when you feel anger and it's a nighttime and perhaps you're in bed and your anger is with your spouse and you think well I'm not to let this go down uh, with the son, so I'm going to wake up my spouse and tell them I'm angry at them. Your laughter tells me by experience you know that does not work very well, right? It, <laughs> I'm noticing my brother back there is responding a lot to this message about words. Love you, John. So I look at this and say, you know, it's not wise... To wake somebody up. So it's, perhaps it's even a friend. You're, you're dealing with anger. The sun is going down. You can't sleep because of your anger. And you think, well, I can't sleep. And the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on my anger. So I need to contact my friend or, or my spouse. Wake them up so that I can relieve myself of my anger and sleep. But what have we done? We paid it forward. We now can sleep But can the other person? You see, in this text, I don't believe we're being coached in the moment. Don't let the sun go down on your anger as a license to not wisely and carefully deal with the anger directly with an individual. I believe it's speaking to you and how you're dealing with the anger in your heart. Perhaps there's an opportunity. You can talk to somebody before the sun goes down. But I believe when you look at the text, the concern is that you're going to let the anger be continued in your soul by ignoring it. Just acting, well, it's there. I'm going to set it aside for another day. So you sweep it under the carpet, as they say. And then another offense happens, and another point of anger gets swept under the carpet. Meanwhile, the anger's growing, and it's becoming a cancer between you and that other individual. And you become a ticking time bomb of anger. It's not good for your soul. But the other possibility that could be going on is not just ignoring it. Maybe you feel justified in it. And you begin to nurture your anger. You know, I kind of liken it to a a movie series that I enjoyed a few years ago, uh, Lord of the Rings. And you remember how Gollum was always calling, my precious. That's creepy, I know. But here's the point. The ring was powerful. And he began to be addicted to it, to where, above all things, he nurtured it to the place where it owned his heart. Anger has the same appeal. If we feel justified in our anger, we hold it, we caress it, we embrace it, we feel justified in it, so it grows deeply within us. And I believe God sees both ignoring it or nurturing it as dangerous. Why? Because look at what verse 28 says. It says that, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 27 says, and do not give the devil a foothold. So do not let the sun go down while you are still angry because it will give the devil a foothold. Which basically is saying this, if you nurture your anger, and you hold on to it to justify yourself. Then ultimately or if you're ignoring it, ultimately you're giving a platform, a space for the devil to begin his work of transformation in you. You see there's two spiritual beings that's desiring to transform you. There's Jesus Christ of whom we are bought by an incredible sacrifice to make us new in him so that we can have freedom and liberation and reconcile to God himself. And then there's Satan who desires for you to experience the same damnation that he has already been assigned to. And he is filled with fury and anger and he's the great accuser. So if you choose to keep a platform of anger that you nurture and you justify it and as well you might ignore it but it's growing in you like a cancer you have given a place for satan to plant his flag and begin to transform your character to his likeness i don't know about you that makes me shudder it means that yes anger comes involuntary involuntarily, and so we've got, we, we acknowledge it. Sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not, but we should never hold on to it because it's not from the root of anger that we should ever act or behave or let become the foundation of our spirit. I believe we're given much alarm to that. And then in verse 28, again, This is about relationships, so our words of truth can help somebody grow and be built up, but anger can come about if we don't do it right, or if somebody's not humble enough to receive, anger can come into play and divide relationships, but it's also true that if we take from one another, where it says in verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work and do something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I would say, you you might say, you know, that's not a common problem in Lancaster County. We have a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality here in Lancaster County. We have a great work ethic here. And so when somebody does not have a good work ethic and they tend to just take from other people, we're like, son, you need to figure it out and begin to work. And that is a positive in our culture. But that's not the aim of this text. What's the aim? The aim is that with a good work ethic, with the potential of being able to earn income, and yes, do it with, a, with our hands being used for good purposes, we're doing so not just so that we can build bigger barns, We do so so that we have greater capacity to give. Now, if I have not touched your toes yet, I believe scripture has just touched all of ours. Right here. Because most of us in the American culture do buy into the idea that, you know, the pursuit of happiness, that if you, capitalism says that if you work hard, you will gain. And then you, well, if you handle it wisely in your investments, then when you retire, you have much. There is nothing necessarily bad with wise spending, with wise investing, and wise saving. But if it is merely just for you to have more and for your children to have more, you have missed the point of what God gave you that work ethic. He gave us that mentality of pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. Make sure your hands are doing good things so that you have something to share that will build others up. Which then means that as you, the more that you get, gain here on this earth, and I believe scripture teaches the more you work and the more you gain, that the more God will give. But it's true that it's also said in Malachi that test them on this, that if you gain and you give, God will give you more. Because to the one who receives from the hard work of their labor and then gives freely, God takes great joy in being able to bless them back. I will gladly compare somebody who is in the average middle class of, of America, who has maybe not millions in their bank, but has learned the joy of giving with what they have and the fulfillment that comes with that and the, and the relationship between them, them and God that is so free. I will take that life over somebody who's gained much but continues to build their kingdom bigger and bigger. And they're giving to others, okay, but it's minimal. I think they miss out on the heart that this text is saying that from verse 1 of chapter 4 all the way to the end, that literally God is reconciling a people to himself so that they can live out Christ to the benefit of each other. And so as we are a collective group of many differences, but we literally are different so that we can serve each other so that nobody's weak. And then when we have the opportunity to speak into each other's lives, we do so wisely and by the Spirit of God so that each other is built up. And that if anger comes, that we don't nurture it, that we don't ignore it. We we, we deal with it so that our hearts are not given over to the Satan himself. And that we then do our work so that, again, not so that we can only benefit, but that the entire church benefits. And then he doubles down on the words again in verse 29. When he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that those who listen will benefit. So ultimately, we're to guard the gate of this mouth. We're to guard the gate of our mouths This word is saying that we are to not let any unwholesome talk, that term unwholesome is probably the lightest term chosen uh, for this particular translation. It literally means we should not let any rotten talk come out of our mouths, any putrid talk, any foul talk, any vicious talk, or that which would corrupt. So the better translation is rotten. Have you ever smelled something rotten? I went away on vacation two years ago, and our freezer stopped working during our vacation. We had an entire quarter of beef that had just been put in that freezer. When we drove into the vehicle, we didn't even open our windows, and we could smell the rotten meat. That's the word that's used here. And what does he say? He says, do not let any word come out of your mouth. No word whatsoever that is rotten or can corrupt the soul of another person. But we are to only, as it says in the text, we are to only speak words that build each of us up. That is the calling of the church. We're to set aside our anger. Make sure we don't send it. We are to make sure that when we as we attain that we give but that the most powerful thing we can do for one another is to speak truth into one another in a way that builds them up, doesn't tear them down. And so we must do as Jesus said. We need to make sure before we talk to each other that we look at the plank in our eye before we help the speck in another's eye. Let's go before the Lord and petition now over our souls. So Jesus... I am am fully under conviction that my words can either destroy or it can give life. I'm fully aware that as I work hard, it could be to my own end and my own end alone or for the greater opportunity to give. In the end of the day, Lord, we're in need of your transformative work but you also call us to be a part of the transformative work in each other's lives. So help us to extend grace to one another as we speak into each other's lives. To your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand please? So if you would like to pray with someone, perhaps anger's got you. Perhaps you've been holding on to the things you've attained. Perhaps you've been wounded by somebody who spoke truth in a way that was not helpful. Perhaps you've wounded somebody in a way that is not helpful. If you'd just like to pray with someone, we've got people that will be in the encounter room to my left that would be glad to talk with you concerning those things. And, uh, you know, it's not good to continue to let some of those wounds continue forward without giving them over to God. And like we've said in this text uh, today, that there's an opportunity for unity. And I want to give this final word from out of what Jesus says in his prayer the night that he was betrayed by somebody very close to him. He prayed not only for his disciples, but he prayed also for those of us who are yet to come he says, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them, the, given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me And I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So God desires to make you one. And Christ is saying to the Father, I want to be in them to bring this unity together. And so to that end, we continue to look forward to Christ transforming us and for Christ to use each of us to bless one another and to truly become all that he intended us to be. As part of that storyline, there will be a baptism uh, here in about 15 minutes if you'd like to join us for that. Regardless of what you choose to do, go out these doors confident that Christ wants to speak into you and through you for the benefit of the entirety of the church. Amen. You are dismissed.